eagles in North Mount Pleasant with their wingspan. I don't even know how wide their wingspan was or is, but they flew around. And as they flew around, the Lord reminded me that whether we feel good when we wake up, whether we're discouraged, whether we're disappointed, whether we're angry, whether we're frustrated, he raises us up on eagle's wings that we would run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. Why, sisters? Because we are the children of Almighty El Elyon God, God who raises us up. Amen. That was beautiful. Amen. That was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you, Pastor Paul and Juliana. We appreciate it. Your worship leading us to the throne room of God. Let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you for raising us up. Lord Jesus, thank you that when we said yes to you, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into light. And Lord, if there's anyone here today or watching via streaming, we ask Holy Spirit that you would touch their hearts that they would say yes to you, Jesus. Because when we say yes to you, we begin this magnificent dance with the Father of life, who gave us life, and in return, he gives us destiny and purpose as we are the hands and feet of Christ on earth. What a privilege, Lord, to do that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everyone here in this room and those of you watching by streaming. I want to start with a, uh, an email that I received this week that I think describes this healing process that we're all in. You know, we're in the process of being transformed. When we accept Christ, as I said, we instantly go into the kingdom of light. And then the real work begins. The Holy Spirit begins to move in us and work in us and transform us and change us. And we co-labor with God. We yield. We surrender. We listen to. We open up our spiritual ears as the Holy Spirit has his way in us. The question is not on God's part. It's on our part. How much of the Holy Spirit do we want? How much of the movement of the Spirit in our lives do we want? I mean, I personally remember a time in my life when I said, you know, give me this much. It reminds me of my, um, my grandson. We went into the woods and played disc golf this past Sunday or Saturday. And as we're, if I said Sunday, all of y'all would get mad at me. You went to church. <laughs> so we'll just say it's Saturday, okay? So anyway, we're playing disc golf, which I'd never played before. You take a disc. Some of you played? Anyway, you throw it in the thing. And I remember it was so precious to watch my husband with this little boy as he was, uh, one would, would have the winning shot and the next one would have the winning shot. And finally, the little 10-year-old was ahead. And he got a little cocky and he goes, hit me with your best shot, you know. And he was doing this because, because my husband, was, when he was doing it, he had a hook in it. And see, this is the way the Holy Spirit is. Sometimes we go, hit me with your best shot. Give me just a little bit of you, a little bit of Jesus. A little bit 
so that my finances get okay. A little bit so this relationship will get a little bit better. A little bit so I have a little healing. A little bit. But God isn't satisfied with that. He wants all of you. He wants all of me. He wants the Holy Spirit to come and just inhabit the spaces of your life. Not just be a visitor. Not that we just tip our hat and go, okay, thank you very much. You can have that portion. Because you see, we can do that all day long. But he will continue to draw us with cords of love. He will continue, and we'll talk about this journey a little bit more, this healing journey, and yet we have to surrender to the process of healing. And today, that's where we're going, is what does this thing look like, this healing? And so I suggest to you that this might be you this morning. It certainly made sense for me personally. Last Sunday, our pastor told an interesting story, and had it not been serious, it would have been funny. He told about a fellow in a support group who for months on end kept praying about a personal problem. But he never did anything about it. Week after week, he would pray with seemingly great conviction, Oh God, clean the cobwebs of my life. Clean the cobwebs out of my life. And finally, in utter frustration, the leader of the group broke into the man's prayer and prayed rather boisterously, Oh God, kill the spider. (laughs) You see, we do that. We play games with God. Holy Spirit, uh, go in that room and clean up the little spider web over here. And God's like, are you kidding me? There's a root in here. There's a cause in here. There's a spider in here that's creating the cobwebs. Women of faith, are you willing to let the Holy Spirit move and have his way in your life? Are you willing to do it? It's scary, but it's safe. Like in the um, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Is he safe? No. But he is good. And so as we yield to this process of healing, we begin to see this transformation, not that we can boast in it, because it's a work of the Spirit. We just yield. And so that's where we're going to go today in trying to understand what is this teaching about today? Where are we going with healing the sick that is in our um, study guide for this morning? I want us to begin so that we can get a little bit of a perspective of where we are. So if you will show us the first slide, we can have an understanding because we actually started, we started in, um, with our first miracle up here in uh, Samaria. And we see, um, actually not in Samaria, we actually went all the way up in Galilee with the uh, water being transformed into wine, if you recall. And then we moved into the woman at the well, who we see her right here in Samaria in a town called Sychar. So we go from here to here as Jesus walks and and has these divine encounters. And then we move into, which is a part that we didn't really look at, but we go back to Galilee again. So we're Galilee back and forth. And we are seeing the official's son being healed up here. Um, in Capernaum, in the north side of the Sea of Galilee, right here. We're actually right here. And so then we end up back all the way down here in Jerusalem. Now, there is some, you can leave it up for just a moment. There's some thoughts with theologians and historians that John, number one, we know that chronologically he was a little inaccurate that he was telling a story and giving deeper meanings, and his purpose was to get us to dive deep with him for deeper spiritual truths. So we begin to see this, and there is a possibility that chapter 5 comes too soon, that it should be after 4, it should be chapter 6, 
and that it has been confused because otherwise we would not be hopping back and forth. I mean, not we, but Jesus here and here and here and here and here. So there is some thought that the chronology is incorrect. You can take that down, but we don't know that for sure. You see, this week, or last week, we left our story with the woman at the well. How many of you were here? That's going to embarrass you if you weren't. <laughs> As we sat with the woman at the well, we recognized that when she met Jesus, it was a reminder of when we met him. When we were thirsty and we were tired and we were discouraged and we sat by the well and we said yes to Christ. You see, he brought us living water, and then she went and told others about Christ. Her story becomes our story. Her encounter becomes our encounter. And last week, we talked about the encounters of God that we have with God move the needle of our spiritual walk step by step and moment by moment. And I want to talk to you a little bit more about this needle that moves. You see, when we first start our spiritual journey, sometimes it's just a crash course. You just fall in love with Jesus, and then all of a sudden you feel like it stops. Because God is beginning to pull you deeper, and the place of surrender and trying to get the Holy Spirit to look at that spider becomes very important to God, that he gets to that place where the cobwebs are being there. So you have this wonderful romance in the beginning, and as you journey and the needle is moving rather slowly, quickly at first, and it begins to slow down. You think, where is God? I'm getting weary and faint. Where is God? And all the things of the world come back, and you had this uh, kumbaya moment with God in the dance, and now you're in real life, and it seems like things are stimmied. Things are, are slowing down. That's all God. That's all God. He moves the course of your life like the streams of the waters. He leads you by, beside and me beside still waters, and he restores our soul step by step. He's a gentle shepherd. He isn't herding a bunch of goats. He's leading his sheep. And so we begin to understand this magnificent story of God getting a hold of our lives and our journey that is step by step moving the needle as the Spirit moves in our lives. And so then we begin to see an acceleration all of a sudden, we start moving towards, towards God. As he draws us, we draw near to him, James 4, 8, and we begin to see an acceleration again. And we see in each encounter, in these miraculous stories that we're seeing in John, we see the disciples who are scratching their, their head going, I'm going to follow this dude, but I have no idea who he is, but I'm drawn to this man they call the Christ. And then we see Nathaniel when he's called and he has his first encounter, and he goes, what good could come out of Nazareth? That's our story. Because as we begin this journey, we begin the journey and God moves us step by step. We are Nathaniel. We are the woman at the well. We are these people in these stories. And so each encounter created in us the, the surrender and an ability to work with God as he moves us quicker and quicker towards our destination, which is heaven. And he stands with his open arms, and actually one of the intercessors saw this in prayer this morning, not knowing it was in my notes, which is so cool. She saw a picture of a child, a baby or a toddler, walking step by step by step. And I don't want to walk right off this. I've never done that yet in 17 years, but I did drop a glass of water one time that went down there, and everybody in the front row got a little baptism. But the, the, the toddler goes step by step by step. 
But the daddy's arms are always wide open, always waiting as he stumbles, being picked up. That is our story. And each time they had an encounter, the disciples moved closer to Christ because encounters with God are transforming. So last week we talked about how do we open our ears and eyes to know when we're in the middle of a divine encounter. And I challenged you with life is one divine encounter with God and one divine appointment after another if you seek him with your whole heart. Be expectant. Now we end up in our story. Actually, I want to tell you one other thing. This flywheel in your life, you push it and you push it and you push that flywheel. If you read the book from good to best, it talks about a flywheel. And we're just pushing that thing and it's not going anywhere. And you're saying, God, I thought this was my destiny. God, I thought this was going to be, this spider was going to be killing. You're pushing and pushing. And all of a sudden, it's like that thing begins to move. And it's moving and you back off. That's the way the spirit works. Suddenly you've done the heavy lifting with God. You've gone for healing. You've sat at the pool of Bethesda. You've been the woman at the well. And suddenly those areas in your life where there are no freedom, you stand back and you watch the glory of God at work. And it's just so incredible. In this book that I keep quoting by Thomas Friedman, the journalist called Thanks for Being Late, talking about pushing the pause button, he talks about the difference between static stability and dynamic stability. Now, here's the difference. Static stability. Now, he's in a, this is a book that is talking about the acceleration in our world. The world is moving very quickly. Globalization, biodiversity, Murphy's Law, all those things, you know, that we've seen from 07 to the present state of affairs. We've seen iPhones. We've seen computers. We've seen mac- microchips and transistors growing and being put into little spaces. We are moving like this. Listen to me, women of faith. Jesus always pointed to the natural that we might see the spiritual. First the natural, then the spiritual. Pay attention to what's going on in our world today. It's God. And in this book, Thomas Friedman says pretty soon it's going to go so fast that humankind can't keep up with it. But there's ways to handle it. There's ways to get in front of it. This flywheel that is going, you'll have to read the book to find about it. About it. But here's what he says. In the old days prior in, let's just say, before um, TVs, before cars, there was something known as static stability. There would be change, and the needle would move, and we would see that we'd get real comfortable, stable, really good. But those days are gone. We can't get stable anywhere. Just turn your TV on. Look in your household. Look at our youth. Look what's going on. There's this incredible acceleration in the natural. And what we see is that ability to have a change in your life and then go, ha, is no longer. Because the minute you have a change, you're back into another change. And that's creating a lot of chaos. It's creating burnout. It's creating exhaustion. Now think with me for a minute. He suggests that we move into a new order, which is called dynamic stability, which means basically you're stable no matter what kind of dynamic is going on. This is the call on the church today. We must move from getting comfortable. Read my book, people. (laughs) I'm I'm really animated. I love this book because it talks about tell your heart to beat again. And it talks about the church waking up to this dynamism, this dynamite power of God, that in the acceleration, the church rises up and is the force of peace in the world. 
What does the word dynamic mean? Where does it come from? It comes from the Greek word dynami, which means what? Power. As the world gets messier, people are looking to people of peace. Who lives in us is the Prince of Peace. Who gives us dynami power, dynamic stability is God. This is our finest hour. This is the time in which we move through scriptures and we see all of these encounters with God. We join into those encounters. We see him. The needle moves in our journey and we begin to wake up and rise up out of the ashes and we become strong for Christ. I'm a living, walking miracle this morning. I went to bed at 5 a.m. And I tell you this not to go, oh, you poor thing. This is the way God operates. He raises us up, Paul, on those eagle's wings that we would run and not grow weary. Y'all, it's supernatural. It's an accelerated pace in which we rise up as Christians and the work of Christ in, in us begins to move forward. We don't need to look at these stories in the Gospel of John as isolated incidents and history. We need to look at them as dynamic stability, as people moving in their spiritual journey, waking up as the disciples and the people were scratching their hair going, maybe this is, the woman at the well says, could this be the Messiah? We are the people that rise up. So I want us to take a look at the next slide, and I want us to look at the pool of Bethesda and just have a little bit of a picture of what it looked like in those days and um, give you a little bit of background. The pool of, um, and actually, as let me start with a little background here. I'm going to compare the two scenes between the woman at the well last week and the man who is at the pool of Bethesda who gets healed because I, thought, I just thought this was very interesting. On the one hand, the woman at the well was all by herself, ostracized. Yet the man at the pool of Bethesda, it was, he was by all sorts of people, right? One solitary, one filled with people. The woman was seeking water to drink, but the sick people at Bethesda were seeking physical healing. The woman at the well was living her life physically whole, but spiritually lacked, spiritually sick. The people by the pool at Bethesda were living their lives physically impaired and perhaps spiritually sick. The woman discovered Jesus and the man beside the pool of Bethesda discovered Jesus. What does that say to us today? It says this, Jesus is in the business of conversion of showing you love and leading you to salvation. Whether you are in it, you can't compare testimonies. One testimony is a woman by the well who's ostracized and meets Jesus. That's her testimony. Don't compare testimonies. I had a wild ride with God when I met Christ. If you look at my testimony and scratch your head and said, I didn't have an encounter like that, then all of a sudden it invalidates your encounter. Your story is your story, sisters. It's your story. You see, people are looking for hope, perhaps needing physical healing, perhaps emotional, spiritual healing. They need a Savior. We need a Savior. I want to um, talk to you a little bit about a film, and then we'll look at it. You see, Jesus' mission is to rescue people, to set the captives free, and rescues are a staple of storytelling, right? We love the stories about rescues from damsels in distress to soldiers trapped behind the enemy line. This story that we're going to see, this clip, is about the risky plan to free six Americans 
who have found shelter at the home of the Canadian ambassador as the Iranian revolution reaches a boiling point. This film will show you about setting the captives free. It is a poignant picture of what Jesus does for us. Let's cue that up and put it up for us to watch. Actions of Iran have shocked the civilized world. Our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages. If we're going to go, then we need to go now. What happened? Six of the hostages went out a back exit. Where are they? The Canadian ambassador's house. We've got revolutionary guards going door to door. These people die. They die badly. White House? Who wants the six of them out? What we like for this are bicycles. Deliver the six bikes, provide them with maps. Or you could just send in training wheels and meet them at the border with Gatorade. It's gonna take a miracle to get them out. Fighting man, what are we watching? I got an idea. They're a Canadian film crew for a science fiction movie. I fly into Tehran, we all fly out together as a film crew. I need you to help me make a fake movie. So you wanna come to Hollywood and act like a big shot without actually doing anything? Yeah, you'll fit right in. You need a script? Argo, science fantasy adventure. Moonscape, Mars, desert. You need an exotic location to shoot. You need a producer. If I'm doing a fake movie, it's gonna be a fake hit. You don't have a better bad idea than this? This is the best bad idea we have, sir. By far. You have 72 hours to get them out. They're getting a visitor. You gotten people out this way before? No. You're asking us to trust you with our lives. This is what I do, and I've never left anyone behind. I know who they are, and they know they're hiding out. It's over, Tony. If they stay here, they will be taken. Probably not alive. We're responsible for these people. I'm responsible. story is going to make a difference when there's a gun to our heads. I think my little story is the only thing between you and a gun to your head. Jesus is in the business of rescuing people. People that were ostracized at the well. Ben Affleck in this movie represents Christ in a, in a prototype, in a, in, a, in a description of someone who goes in and he says, I, at all costs, I'm going to rescue these people. I have an idea and I'm going to get them out. You see, Jesus rescued the woman at the well. Sick, broken, wounded people, people held hostage. That's why he came, folks. Mission impossible. His mission statement was to set the captives free. Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. That's who we serve, and that is our hope. And that's the hope that we carry within us as God cleans up our lives, as he gets the spiders out of us, as he heals us emotionally, physically, wherever we are impaired. He raises us up on eagle's wings. He brings us out of the ashes that we might go and be the hands and feet of Christ to set people out free with his good news of hope. That's who we're called to be.
And with every breath that I take until I go to be with Jesus, my message is going to be, church, you have to wake up, rise up, and grow up into our full potential. This is our hour to be the hands and feet of Christ in a turbulent world. This was Christ's mission, and it is our mission as Christ works through us. Let's take a look at the script for today in John 5 with the man at the pool. And as we are looking at that, I'll tell you a quick story. I got lost in North Charleston. Um, I get lost everywhere. I get lost in my neighborhood. I, I just have a hard time with that. And so, and I feel really um, self-conscious about it. You know, I try to cover it up. People get in the car with me. I know where I'm going. And they're like, no, you don't. I, I really do get nervous and anxious about it. And I've got GPS on my phone talking. I've got GPS in my car talking. And I still get lost. So this happened. There were railroad tracks between me and where I needed to go. And I am convinced that the GPS was talking me the wrong way. And so finally, I pulled over in really just a dead-end street. And I did not know I pulled over at a tattoo parlor. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have been to tattoo parlors lately, but I didn't even see it. I was pulled in. I put my car in. I put my head down, and I said, God, I am so tired of this inability, this impairment, this illness. You can call it whatever it is. I feel stupid. I feel whatever. You know how we do, right? You ever talk to yourself like that? I can't stand anymore. I, I turned around, and I said, oh, great. I'm in a tattoo parlor. And I said, you might as well just, I might as well just go in and get a tattoo that says, you know, I am directionally challenged. So, you know, just, just, you know, self-pity, pity pot, and I'm just sitting there, I'm mad, I'm frustrated. I'm very, very lost in a bad part of town. The Lord says to me, Joanne, Joanne, what is the tattoo that I've put on your heart? You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You are bright because I made you. You are not directionally challenged. You are, and he began to tell me who I was. And I looked up and I said, well, then I'm going to go to that tattoo parlor and put that on me. And, you know, the point being, we all have impairments. You know, we all have things that we have, whether you're the man at the pool and you can't walk or whether you have a spiritual illness or a physical or whether, whatever, however you are impaired, you have cobwebs too. And God wants to get to the root of those things. You see, here we're looking at this John 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem... Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. You saw that in the other picture. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed, kind of all hanging out together. You think sometimes we hang out together, blind, lame, paralyzed, and we sort of feed on one another? Me too. I got this problem, me too. Rather than going, okay, we're going to pray about this. We're going to move on from this place. Sister, I'm going to hold your hand. We hang out sometimes with our invalid stuff. One man was, now don't get me wrong. We need to get together. If you have a problem, pray for one another. But that is not our identity. So, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That is quite a long time, is it not? So, there, were, there were, you can take that down. There were three Jewish feasts which were feasts of obligation. They had to go to Jerusalem to these three feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And most New Testament scholars think, again, that chapter 6 should have been before 5, and that would determine whether he was at the Pentecost feast or the Passover feast, depending on where it fell. So we're not exactly sure. Most commentaries were saying Passover, but we don't know. Every adult male Jew who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem was legally bound to attend. 
And it is believed, again, that it was Passover. John shows us that Jesus attended the feast. He did not disregard the obligations of Jewish worship. To him, it was a delight to go and worship. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he was apparently alone because there's no mention of disciples. Then he went to Bethesda, which means house of mercy. In Hebrew, ben Beth Zatha, which means house of olives. The better manuscripts use the second name. So we know from the historian Josephus that there was actually a quarter or section known as Beth Zatha. The pool was deep there, deep enough to swim in. And so we see beneath the pool is a subterranean stream, which is what caused it to bubble up and disturb the water. And the text, some say, some have it in brackets, that an angel would come and, and do, you know, stir up the waters and they'd have to get in the water. This poor man could not get in the water. He was physically impaired. And actually, ancient peoples were superstitious. They were impressed with the holiness of water, especially rivers and springs. Water was so precious, and the river was so powerful. You know, in the West, we know water is something that just comes out of the tap. But in the ancient, it was valuable, potentially dangerous. It was something to be feared almost. In fact, I read Fraser in Folklore in the, in the Old Testament quotes many instances of the reverence for water, and to this day, in southeast Africa, some of the Bantu tribes believe that the rivers are inhabited by evil spirits, and they have to be propitiated by flinging a handful of corn or another offering into the stream. So let's answer some questions as we, we look at the rest of this text. So, why did Jesus go to this man? Why didn't he go around healing everybody at the pool? Well, if we know and we look, the sum of God's word is truth. If we look at the totality of Scripture, it teaches us that we have to look at the sum of God's word. And it says that Jesus always went to his Abba Father to get time with him to pray and to get his directions, to hear from his daddy. And Jesus himself says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. Now, how does he know what to do? because he hung out with his dad. How do you know what to do? You hang out with Christ. You pray. You read your scriptures. You journal. You listen to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. And so this is what Jesus shows up in his model. How did he pick that man? Because his dad probably said when he was up on the mountain and praying, tomorrow you're going to go to Jerusalem to the feast. And when you go there, your mission impossible rescue operation Argo type movie is going to happen with one guy that can't move. Why did he pick this one man? I don't know. But Jesus went directly to him and healed him. Of course, everybody got mad. The Pharisees got mad. The Sanhedrin, the religious people got mad because he healed on the Sabbath. Every time there's an encounter with God, the pharisaical spirit comes in and begins to yank their chain. Every time you and I have an encounter with God, you can expect, by golly, that the enemy's going to get ticked off. Why? Because more cobwebs are being moved. Why? Because the needle of the journal of your life is being moved to grow and accelerate with Christ. The enemy does not want you to have an encounter, and if you have an encounter, there's a backlash where he says, I, either it's not real, or he might even whisper something like, you know, it's the Sabbath. That religiosity. Think about that for a minute. Do we see that in our world today? I think we do. We see it in our churches today. I think we do. 
So, why did Jesus ask the man if he wanted to get well? Now, this is a good way to study scriptures. Ask yourself questions. I ask questions and questions. I know that when I get to see Jesus in heaven, he's going to go, you were the one that asked 10,000 questions in 30 seconds. Whew. Glad you're up here and I don't have to listen to him anymore because every question will be answered when every knee bows. And when we meet Jesus, we'll know, the, we'll know the answers to all these questions. So why did Jesus ask the man if he wanted to get well? I'm thinking, that is a dumb question. Now, I wouldn't say that to Jesus. I'm saying that to y'all. <laughs> of course he wants to get well. Maybe not. You see, Jesus can see inside you all. He can see inside me. He reads our mail. He knows who we are. He created us. Maybe, maybe, maybe he saw in this man, a man after 38 years was most likely identifying with his illness. Are you identifying with your cobwebs? Oh, well, that's just me, you know. That's just me directionally challenged. I just have to live with this and feel stupid all my life and, and hang out by tattoo parlors. We all do this. Y'all do it. Every one of us does it. And so what we begin to understand is that some people have an identity in their illness. Others fear, what's life going to look like? He may have had to think, how am I going to earn a living? I'm, you know, after this many years, this is my gig now. I get money sitting here. What is it? And yet others desperately want to be healed. There's so many things. That's just a packed question. And I ask you that this morning. Do you want to get healed? Or do you not? It's really a powerful question to ask. When I was sitting in that tattoo parley, parlor, I didn't want to get healed. I wanted to identify with my weakness. I wanted to sit on my pity pot and say, look at you, you're lost again. You're always lost, you're always late. And I was just in such a stew. We do these things and it is the enemy because when you have an encounter with God, there's a backlash often. Other question, why did Jesus say stop sinning so something worse doesn't happen? What? You mean if I send something's worse going to happen? Oh my goodness. You know, listen, let's just get, let's just take a deep breath. Here's the deal. People have illnesses because they miss the mark. The word miss the mark is amartia in Greek. It means sin. People go all go crazy with that word nowadays. It's not politically correct. It's not even correct in some churches. But sin means misses the mark. Amatia. What does that mean? Okay, if you smoke too much and you drink too much, it's going to impair your body. Now, I come from a family of physicians, and I know this for a fact. And some of you may know it because you're doing those things. Here's the deal. It'll hurt your liver, etc. If you look at pornography, it emblazons in your mind that picture. And it transfers all kinds of things happen. Physiologically, it is. So does it impair your body, your soul, your spirit when you miss the mark? Indeed, it does. But that's not really the question, is it? The question is, this is a man that physically can't walk. Do you think he sinned and that made him not? you think he smoked too much and he couldn't walk? So we have to ask the deeper question there. And I can't say that I have all the answers, but I can tell you that in Ju the Jewish background is they believed that suffering and sin went hand in hand. Suffering and sin, this was their belief. And Jesus always walked with integrity in the belief of the system. He went to the feast, he honored the people, the Jewish people, and he understood their ways. And so when he asks a question like that, he's asking a deeper question. He's asking, do you want to get well? He's asking the question and showing he understands that sin is indeed in his life. And he has the man look a little bit deeper. Do you think maybe missing the mark, the deeper question, could it cause you, your heart to be hardened? 
etc., etc. We could take this. Now, to take it one step further, we know in Scripture that Jesus healed a paralytic, and we see that in Matthew 9. And when he did, he first said, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees went berserker. And they said, how can you, you know, say his sins are forgiven? Are you God or something? He goes, yeah, I am, by the way. <laughs> Hello. And then he says, okay, so you'll believe I'll heal you. What is more significant? What is harder, Jesus says? What is more important, that you get up off your mat or that your sins are forgiven? Are you beginning to see the layers in the scripture? It's more important that we're forgiven. I'd rather he sat there beside the pool of Bethesda knowing his sins were forgiven. I know people like Joni Eric, is it Tata, who is completely impaired. She, she dove in a swimming pool and she's, I think from her neck down, I can't remember. She isn't on her pity pot. She's changing the world for Jesus. She's physically impaired, but she knows her sins are forgiven. That's the deeper truth in this scripture. I want to kind of end with this whole scenario about healing today. Before I do that, I want to pose a question to you. When the guy got up, picked up his mat, the Pharisees were mad because it's Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Healing is, is the higher grace. We see this mat. He's carrying around this mat. And I want you to leave this week and I want you to ask yourself the question, when Jesus heals you, what mat were you lying on? You need to identify that spider. And when God delivers and heals and sets the captive free, that's you and me, that mat becomes your place of anointing. That mat, that place you were laying down, that pity pot place, that place where you were physically, emotionally, and spiritually impaired, you pick it up in your, heal, in your healing power of God, and now you have that mat that you're carrying around as the light of Christ. Think about that. It now becomes the opposite of what it was. When you were on that mat, you were nobody. When God healed you, you are suddenly that what the enemy intended for evil, God intends for good. So remember your mat. Is healing for today, folks? The word says God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I take him at his word. Healing is for today. The primary word in the kingdom language of healing is sotiria, which means wholeness and wellness. Isaiah 53 is what we're going to end on. It's a description of what Jesus said. Let's take a look at it as we close out. Isaiah chapter 53 says, Jesus, it's referring to Jesus, it says, He was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, with grief pointing to Christ. He was the one that was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorries. Yet we esteemed him stricken. But here is the part I want you to leave you with today. He was wounded. Why? For our transgressions. He was crushed. Why? For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Let's unpack that. It is a powerful testament to the powerful healing of God. The word pierced is the word shala. The root means to bore. It means to wound and to break. The word transgression is pesha. It means rebellion. We're going to put this together in a minute. 
The word crushed is daka, and it means to crumble and break into pieces. The word iniquity, avon, means perversity, and the word chastisement, musor, means punishment. Let's put it, and stripes, chabura, or really kabura, means black and blue bruises, and the word rafa, we are healed, is from the word that means to stitch together and make whole again. Now, does not that scripture come alive? Let's put it together. But he was pierced, wounded for our transgression, i.e. our rebellion. He was crushed and broken to pieces for our iniquities, i.e. our perverse nature. And the chastisement, the punishment that gave us peace and brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, which is wounds, black and blue and purple marks, we are mended and stitched to be sotidia, whole and made well again. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We must pray and believe that God heals today. The man at Bethesda, he put all his cards on the table and said he wanted that healing when Jesus asked him. So the question that hangs out there is, do you want to be healed? Do you want Christ to come? For many of you, and I certainly have had this in my family, for many of you, there's, I had my sister-in-law was bedridden for 20 years. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed that she would be healed. She wasn't healed. She went to be with Jesus, and then my husband's second sister died. And I'm like, God, we prayed. I don't understand this. But here's the deal. The bigger picture was their sins were forgiven, and they converted, I bet you, thousands of people to Christ. Beloved friends, pray for healing, and allow God to heal in His way and in His time. And let's let God be Jehovah Rapha, the one who was bruised for us and now stitches us back together that we might be made whole again. Amen. Prayer teams, if you'll come up, I suspect a lot of you need to pray for healing.